Uh, let's go ahead and open our Bibles, uh, not to Galatians chapter 5, but to Isaiah uh, chapter 52. We're going to be in Isaiah 52 and 53 today. Uh, Isaiah is found in the Old Testament between Song of Solomon and Jeremiah. Uh, if you need help finding it, uh, you can just go to the table of contents at the beginning. There's no shame in that. That's why it's there. Uh, also, the words will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Uh, one thing I wanted to encourage us in, though, uh, because I think um, there's just something uh, there's something about it is I want to encourage you to bring uh, your Bible uh, with you on Sundays. I mean, let's open the word in that manner. And so I want to encourage you if you don't have a Bible, let me know and we will get you a Bible. Um, so, yeah, we are going to be in a new series, a three week series called Engaging Redemption. Now, each year, what we usually do is we take at least one Sunday uh, to stop and celebrate what we term as Easter or Resurrection Sunday from the vantage point of the resurrection in the Gospels, right? But yeah, even as I say that, man, something that, that we seek to do as a church, something as, as we walk through God's Word each and every week, we want to celebrate the resurrection weekly, do we not? It's not just limited to one Sunday a year, man. The resurrection is something that really should be celebrated daily. But what we're trying to do during this season is hone in on the celebratory stories that surround this time of year. And so this year what we're going to do, we're going to do that very thing, but we're going to expand it to three weeks and we're going to call it Engaging Redemption. And so what I want to do is I want to take a moment as we do with each series that we kind of kick off and, and uh, I want to talk about what we want to get out of this series, uh, beginning with the title. Because I believe that it's going to set the tone for where we're headed and why it points us to the resurrection and gives us hope. So when we think about these terms, engaging and redemption, really, if you break down both of those words, uh, you get the word engage and redeem or to engage and to redeem. And so uh, engage, if we're going to look at the word engage, define is a verb that means this. It means to occupy, to attract or to involve someone's attention or life. That's what it means to engage, right? And so what we know, really, if we just think about life, like marriage typically begins with what? It begins with engagement, right? And it's not just like the the formal engagement, like it even, that engagement begins during dating, right? Like if you, when you see your significant other, you want to engage them in conversation, in time spent together. And, And what you do, we all do this, usually by making ourselves look really good or what we, we think we make ourselves look really good, right? We go about, we try to do things to attract our significant other, right? Like y'all can think back, like when you dated, like the things that you would do. Like some of us, like have Mustang cars, and like they have really loud pipes, and uh, you you know you'd invited to a movie. You know, uh, some of us, you know, we we uh, try to engage with a nice dinner with the best mashed potatoes ever. I didn't know she didn't like mashed potatoes, <laughs> but I tried. They were almost like just like potato soup, uh, a lot of sour cream. Uh, but you know, we go about trying to. We, you know, you never, and during the dating process, like, 
whether we, we, we think that we cover up all of our mess, but really we don't. Like we just hide it maybe a little bit better, but it, it comes out, right? Like ever so often. And we, we try to present ourselves in such a way that we're all put together. And some of you are like, no, we just went into it, right? Like here's the mess and here it is. But we seek, like when we, when we see our significant other, we want to engage them. And, and this engaging by God's grace moves one day to what we term as engagement, where uh, typically I mean, the, the man asks the woman for their hand in marriage. So uh, Haley and I, we dated. Uh, man, we got it all set up. I had the ring, got down on my knee. Some of y'all know the story. Said, will you marry me? All these sweet things were said. She looked and said no. And then she waited just long enough for me to get really freaked out and uncomfortable. And then she laughed and said, I'm just joking. Yes. Uh, and uh, man, marriage has been great for almost 10 years now. Uh, and so that's, that, that's typically what we think of when we think of engagement. And so when we think about engaging or engagement, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, you see, the good news of the gospel reveals to us that in light of our brokenness and God's love for us, God sent his one and only son, John 3, 16, to come and dwell among us. You see, Jesus did not just dwell among humanity. As we're going to see all through this series, Jesus engages us. Specifically, Jesus engages our sin, doubts, and identities. And man, when we hear that, I think if we're honest, that's hard for us to swallow. What I mean by that is we don't like people getting into our mess, do we? Because it's my mess. And sometimes we just like our mess. Other times we have our mess cleaned up just enough to where we want to cover it up. But or but when someone like I'm going to deal with it, I'm going to fix it. And so even when Jesus comes like we don't know what to do with that. Also, I think as we think about, man, Jesus coming and engaging our sin, doubts, and our broken identities, man, wouldn't a holy God want to run from our mess? I mean, I think that's what many, and I think even including us at times, like we can believe that like God, he, like he just wants to kind of run away and just like, hey, get yourself together and then you can come before me, right? Like this is what many teach, which is why every other religion, in every other religion, God does not engage you. Rather, you must seek to engage God by what? By being good enough, by doing enough. But Jesus does the exact opposite. And man, it baffles our minds. We don't understand it. The Bible says it's actually outright offensive You see, apart from grace, it is offensive, but this is what it is, and it's good news for our souls. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, and again, we have free copies. Get one and read it, because it, I I saw a report this week that one and a half million copies in just this year have been given out or sold. That's a lot of copies of a book in a year. And it is a phenomenal resource sharing the heart of what Jesus does for us. But he says this, he says that Jesus, the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth, in light of the unfathomable horrors horrors of our brokenness, did not run away. He did what? He engaged it. His first impulse, Ortland states, is to move towards the broken, to spend time with the broken. Jesus touched the broken. 
But you see, when Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, which the, the, the religious leaders would never do that, because if you touched someone that was unclean, you became unclean. Jesus, the clean one, touched the unclean sinner. He did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. You see, it's this making clean that we will define in this series as redemption. The verb redemption defined is to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of a person. It's to atone or make amends for evil or error. Uh, Another definition of redeem that I love is to regain possession of something in exchange for payment. You see, Jesus didn't just engage our brokenness so that he might shame us by making a list of all our wrongs and then telling us just to be better and believe better if we want to see change in our lives and be near to God. No, Jesus engages and redeems our brokenness through His perfect life, through His, and we're going to see this today, His brutal death and His victorious resurrection. And it's this reality that that, that we want to get not just a clearer picture of, but deeper worship for and greater obedience in light of. You see, our goal for this series is that we would celebrate the good news that Jesus not only engaged our brokenness, but he redeemed us from it, past, present, and future. And the product of this celebration is that we would then, by the Spirit's power, seek to engage others and proclaim the redemption of Christ to the hopelessly broken areas of their lives. So how do we how are we going to go about this? Well, one, I just said it like the spirit's going to have to empower us to do that. But in light of that, we must become a people that pray. For the engaging of the redemption of others. Today, are you praying? That Jesus would engage and redeem those around you. But not only that, we we can't just pray for them. We're going to have to engage them relationally. God, He he wants to use us. He does use us to be in word and deed good news to other people. We point other people to Jesus. But in that, as we pray and as we engage, guess what we're going to have to have a lot of? We're going to have to have a whole lot of patience. Which again, we don't like. Like we want the quick fix for ourselves and for other people. And so man, when they don't change immediately, what are we going to want to do? What do we always want to do? Oh, I'm going to tell them, right? I'm going to try to change them in my own power. I'm going to have the best argument or I'm going to have, I'm going to have the most anger or, you know, but of course it's righteous anger always, right? Uh, I'm going to do all these things and man, they're going to know. They're going to learn. Instead of being patient. and But then lastly, as we pray, as we engage, as we have patience, knowing that only God can do the work, we are also called to be expectant. That He will do the work. So this is where we're headed. This is where we're headed during this season of Easter. During As we lead into next week, we're going to look at Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to really press into the doubts around, man, how we have doubts about Jesus. But before, we're going to have to look at the cost Jesus paid to engage and purchase our redemption. 
And so we're going to be looking at the story of the suffering servant at the end of Isaiah 52 and really the entirety of Isaiah 53. And what I want us to see is that the Bible is one story. The Bible is one story that is pointing to how God's glorious plan of salvation would engage and redeem everything. It's been the same story since the start. This portion of Scripture we're about to start reading is, is actually, by many scholars, is entitled the fifth gospel. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, but they entitle... Uh, the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 is the fifth gospel. So let's begin by reading verses 13 through 15. This is Isaiah speaking. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Okay, so we have a lot to get through today in this section of Isaiah. And so quickly, let me just give some perspective on what's going on here. So this prophecy of Isaiah took place around around 740 B.C. So over 700 years before Jesus ever came. Which to me, again, is one of those things is like, this stuff, man, it, like, it's so, it's so true. Like, you know, like, it, it's 700 years before Jesus ever came and they're talking about what he would do. What happens during Isaiah's time is, is this is taking place. Israel has rebelled against God and they find themselves in exile. You see, this seemingly once great nation is filled with hopelessness and despair. You see, they're stuck. And they can't get themselves out of the mess that they put themselves in. Sounds a bit like us. And so what happens is God uses Isaiah as his mouthpiece to proclaim to God's people the reality of their sin. To call them to repentance. But also he gives them hope of rescue from exile. And in Isaiah 52 we get this story of a salvation that's to come. Now, for those in exile hearing this, this would sound like a release from the bondage of their earthly oppressor. But what God shares through Isaiah is that it would come by one rescuer who would bring their salvation in a way that was not at all expected. Because you see what Isaiah does, he doesn't share about a warring king that would shed the blood of their earthly oppressors. Rather, he shares about a servant that would come and would suffer and shed his own blood for their redemption. And he would rescue in an ultimate sense. That would bring, as we're going to see, healing and peace. And so in Isaiah 52, it begins with this definitive statement of success. Isaiah says that this servant of God, who would be God in the flesh, he says he will act wisely. Now, now that, what that, that doesn't just mean that he would have wisdom and he would be smart. No, what, the, what that term actually means, it, to act wisely was to live, and in this particular case, ultimately die to fulfill all righteousness. You see, while we are fools, Jesus is the wise one that would come and live wisely. He would live in the way that God had intended Fully submitted to the Father's will. And yet his death seems foolish. 
but it was the most wise act that could ever happen. You see, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection came about while looking foolish was actually wise so that we might know rescue and resurrection. Therefore, Isaiah says, and again, this is a major statement because this rescue would come over 700 years later. He says that this suffering servant would be high and lifted up or exalted. You see, Jesus would be the king that upon finishing his work would ascend to heaven and reunite and sit, which sitting in the scriptures means that it's finished. It's complete. There's nothing. He can rest from his work. At the right hand of the Father, where He, as Revelation 5 states, would and will for all eternity receive what? Blessing and honor and glory. Not only that, but I think, I mean, you can even look at this and see, man, Jesus being high and lifted up is a picture of Him being lifted up upon the cross. Again, it looks foolish. Again, it's the ultimate picture of death. And yet... Isaiah is saying, nope, it's what needs to happen. It's not the expected lifting, but it's actually what's going to cause him to be able to sit at the right hand of the Father. But how would he do this? Well, I mean, simply the answer is he's brutally killed in a way that Isaiah says it would bring astonishment to the world. But man, it would like if you think about it, it has to be astonishing, right? Not in the sense that it's filled with fanfare and it was a big production, but due due to the astonishing nature of our brokenness, God would have to meet that with an even greater act of redemption. You see, because of the the bigness or because of big sin, which our sin is great and big. We often don't think it is, but it is. There had to be big suffering. And so Isaiah is clear when he says, he says, he will be marred. Hear this because, because man, I, I want to, and man, the, the, the way things are, Isaiah is going to write about that and tell things today, man, they're brutal. And I want us to hear just how brutal they are because I think that in this season, we can tend to lighten or glamorize the cross. We, we begin to say, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I'm just ready. Like, I'm going to go. We're going to dress up. Like, I've already, I mean, I'm already a week early. I've got my pink shirt on. Like, we're going to have Easter eggs. And, and uh, I hope I'm not going to get knocked out this year. And because uh, that happened last year. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a good day. And, and we're going to eat food. And, and then, boom, we're done. We glamorize Easter. I mean, it it, it should be celebrated, but we forget what it cost. He will be marred and beaten to such an extent for our sin. Isaiah says he'll be unrecognizable. One writer shares that Isaiah here is connecting how repulsive Jesus became in suffering for us with how effective he is in purifying us. And it was his extreme suffering that measures his extreme power to cleanse Again, big sin means big suffering so that we might have big, great, expansive worship in new life. This is how Jesus engaged our death to bring the redemption of life. 
Isaiah says, for in doing this, he would sprinkle many nations. Now, this is significant for both us and those in exile, because you see in Judaism, when a leper was cleansed by priests, what they would do is they would sprinkle blood on the leper to signify that their disease was gone and they were now accepted into community. This is what Jesus would do at the cross, but he would do so as a priest who, unlike the priests in the temple, would not himself need to be cleansed. You see, even the priests, on the day of atonement of Yom Kippur, the priests would have to purify themselves before they could even go make sacrifice. They would separate themselves a week beforehand and begin fasting and praying to get their hearts right. And then on the day of, they would wake up early and they would wash themselves uh, until the, you know, their skin would, would, you know, it's like their skin's almost coming off. Like, they, like they've got to get clean and they would put on a clean robe and they would go in and make a sacrifice for themselves. But they would have blood on their clothes, so they would step out. They would wash again, put new clothes on, go in, make another sacrifice, wash again. Like, it, it's this picture of, man, even no matter how hard they tried, they weren't clean enough. But you see, Jesus is both our priest and our sacrifice. His blood is pure enough to cleanse the nations, taking away our disease and making us acceptable to enter the community of God. This should be good news for us today. That in, in Isaiah, the story hasn't changed. Remember what I told you all a few weeks ago in Galatians. When you see the word nations, it's not a, a place of land. It is, it's people groups. It's ethnicities. What what Isaiah is saying here well before Jesus came is that Jesus came for Jew and Gentile. You see, we are not a second thought. But we are part of the plan. Then Isaiah says, it's this sacrifice that shuts the mouths of kings and will, whether then, now, or later, be an ultimate reality to show Christ's authority over all things, both in heaven and on earth. He's saying, man, every king that's ever stood will stand in awe of the greater king. And we can look at that and be like, yeah, they will. Man, all those people that are in power, like one day, they, they're going to know. Guess what? He's talking about us too, because we are all little kings and queens. We are all We all seek to rule over our lives as little sovereigns. And we must lay down our rule over self and submit fully to the Lordship of Christ. The work of Jesus, the person work of Jesus shuts all of our mouths, does it not? We have nothing to bring to the table. And I think like we, I mean, we just just got through the end of Isaiah 52. Like that should be enough But there's more to describe how Jesus engages and brings our redemption that I believe we need to hear. So let's begin with the first six verses of Isaiah 53. He goes on to say this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All right, so quickly, I want to say in in verse one, Isaiah begins with a couple of questions. And the answer to that portion is going to be found in verse six. So what Isaiah is doing here is Isaiah is lamenting over the unbelief of God's people and their deep need for rescue. Man, today, do you lament? Do, Do we lament over our own sin? Today, do we lament over the unbelief of others? I don't know that we do. We seek to go about it by our own devices. And if I can just say it the right way or go about this the right way, man, they'll just, they'll get it. No, they only get it if if by grace, God engages and redeems. Let's pound the heavens. That's why Isaiah, he asks, he says, who has believed and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you know anything about Isaiah's story, if you read the the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he has a vision. And in this vision, he's in the the heavenlies and he sees the angels of the Lord crying out. And and he he realizes really, he he says, I see the train of God's glory, the train of his robes filling the temple. And there's smoke and lightning and thunder. And and he's like, he realizes really quickly, I'm not it. He says, woe is me, for I am unclean, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I reside in a people of unclean lips. But guess what? Isaiah is cleansed, but he's not cleansed by anything he did. Which is why he says, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah has experienced the arm of the Lord. He's experienced this arm of rescue. You see, the arm of the Lord is our rescue For it would only be, it is only by faith, it is given to us by grace that brings us to realize that only through the work of God's servant Jesus are we saved. And the reason it has to be God to both reveal and accomplish this is is due to the fact that, again, we believe ourselves to be self-sovereigns. We believe ourselves to rule our own lives. But we make poor rulers, do we not? But you see, also, the reason this has to happen is because the way God would go about engaging our redemption was unexpected and not how we in our own flesh would think it up. You see, we would think, man, if someone's going to come and they're going to defeat something, it has to be by war and bloodshed. Even Jesus' disciples, like as they're going into Holy Week, they're like, hey, when are you going to bring the kingdom? We're in Jerusalem. Yes, you didn't come in on a war horse, you came in on a donkey, but there's still time, Jesus. When are you going to overthrow Rome? Jesus says, y'all, y'all don't get it. My kingdom's upside down. His disciples didn't even understand. They thought that war and the blood of others was the only way to bring redemption. 
You see, no one, not even Israel, thought that redemption would come by way of one rescuer suffering on behalf of those who were enslaved. There's no grid for that. This reality is fitting with how Isaiah describes Christ's future coming. He says that he grew up like a young plant. What that means is he grew up like any other child. There was there, Nothing seemed special about him. Actually, when Jesus starts proclaiming the kingdom, they, what do they say? They say, hey, isn't he from Nazareth? Isn't he that carpenter's son? Nothing good can come from Nazareth. But he goes further. He says he was a root out of dry ground, which means he was unimpressive. A root in dry ground is not a promising start. It would be seen as a failure. That's why Jesus, when he's on the cross, they mock him and say, hey, if you were really the son of God, if you were really the savior, you could get yourself down. What they're saying in that moment is that guy's a failure. He thought he could, but he couldn't. Says that he had no form of majesty. What that means is that Jesus was not above, right? He wasn't born, he was born in a stable that didn't smell well, right? He wasn't born in a palace. Although he is the king of all creation, everything is made through him. You see, he engages and relates to us right where we are. You don't have to come from royalty to be engaged by Jesus. Says that he has no beauty that we would desire. I want you to think about all those pictures, like growing up, like I grew up in the Baptist church, and like there's all these paintings of Jesus, and like he, his hair's just perfect, right? There, like his his robe, like every like he he has it almost looks like he has makeup on, and he's like he's ready, right? And that that that's, Isaiah says, nope, that's not what he would look like. That's not like he has no beauty that we would desire. You see, we look at external stuff; God looks at the heart. It's always been that way. Look at Saul and David. God's people say, hey, we want a king. And we want that guy that's taller than everyone and stronger than everyone and looks better than everyone. And he says, okay, I'll give that to you, but that's not the king you really need. The, the king is actually a shepherd boy that is after my heart. And he would come, and, and this shepherd boy would come, and he would defeat Goliath, right? Not by his power and strength, but by the arm of the Lord. Jesus comes to do the same thing. To defeat our greater Goliath. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one whom David's heart was after. So he says this. He says, rather, he was despised and rejected. The religious leaders rejected him. Jesus' own family rejected him. The disciples flee as soon as he gets arrested, right? We, it says we were enemies of God. Says he was a man of sorrows who was well acquainted with grief. You see, Jesus is not a king who came and never dealt with the struggles of life. He understood sorrow and grief in ways, man, that I believe that we we can't because guess what? Jesus experienced it while being without sin. I don't know how that feels. You see, in doing it, it so broke his heart, but he did not run from it. He engaged it head on, taking our sorrows upon himself through suffering and becoming so hideous through it. It says that Jesus was so hideous that men hid their faces. But he did it to take our suffering and grief upon himself so that we wouldn't have to carry it. 
You see, this is what it means when it says he bore our griefs. You see, his sorrows were not his own. He didn't deserve them in any way. He was without sin. The sorrows and grief that Jesus bore were ours, not his. Jesus substituted his joy for our sorrows. That's why when Jesus says for the joy, it says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You say, man, I'm going to lay down that because there's a deeper joy that's going to be found through me suffering. I'm going to take my sorrows so y'all might have joy. Ray Orland writes that through Jesus, God has done what we'd have no right to do. God shifted the blame to Jesus as He died for guilty people. God has pointed the finger. He has laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity, sin, grief, and sorrow of us all. Therefore, He is regarded as stricken, which means to be tortured. He, by the love of God, was struck or smitten by God. Being afflicted with our disease, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for, hear this, for our, for mine, for yours. He was crushed for our iniquities. And He was chastised or He was punished for what? Well, verse 5 says it was all done for our redemption. Though the words you use to describe our peace and healing, peace is the shalom of God, the full, complete restoration. It is healing means full repair, not just partial. It's for this reason that Isaiah is lamenting the unbelief. And it's today while we all should lament our own unbelief because we are so quick to forget or cheapen Christ's suffering on our behalf. You see, we forget that we were sheep that had gone astray and need to be near to the one whom our iniquity was laid upon. We should get ever nearer to our shepherd. Guess what? You can't get near enough. The Christian life is not a boring life, it is an ever expanding, it is ever expanding glory just waiting to be delved into. But we cheapen it by casting aside, as C.S. Lewis says, for mud pies of life, do we not? And Isaiah gets this. He, he understands this. So again, what he does, what he's going to do, is he's going to present us again with the work of Christ. Which is what we need, because we are so, we are so quickly, we hear the good news, and then we're so quickly to forget it. I'm so quickly to forget it. I need it. All the time. This is what it means. What Isaiah is going to do in the next few verses. This is what it means to proclaim the good news of the gospel over our lives. We need it in front of us moment by moment. And so let's close out by reading verses 7 through 12. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for, uh, for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgression. Okay, so I, Isaiah continues, and we're going to look briefly by uh, sharing further regarding Christ's suffering. And what we see is that he was oppressed for our injustice. He was afflicted on our behalf, and yet it says he did not open his mouth. That's the opposite of us, isn't it? We're so quick to cast blame, and yet Jesus, the perfect one, did not cast any blame. But he took our blame shifting upon himself. He is who we must look to. Our culture is being destroyed by blame shifting. And it's nothing new. It started in Genesis chapter 3. Adam, what happened? The woman made me do it. Eve, the serpent, like there's this, it's, it's never ended. He suffered and died being cut off from the land of the living. And it says he was buried not among the saints, but among the wicked rich, even though he had done no violence and carried no deceit in his mouth. You see, Jesus was innocent in both word and deed. He was perfect in every way. And because of his innocent atonement, by which he took our guilt upon himself, we can know and find hope that he can engage and redeem our brokenness. You see, while you are not innocent, he is, so let him engage your guiltiness and impute or give you his innocence. That's what happens. Uh, the, the, all, like when you, when, when, when you are redeemed by Jesus, all of your guilt is taken away. And guess what you receive? All, all, all of his righteousness. Verse 10 says, in all this, it was the will of God to crush him and to put him to grief. It was not plan B, but the great love that we see all through Scripture. Following all this, Isaiah lays out the promised result of what this would bring, which is resurrection, victory, and fruit. Isaiah says that this suffering sermon, he says he'll see his offspring. He will prolong his days. You see, today, if you are a follower of Jesus, redeemed by grace and grace alone, you are of His offspring. For through His life, death, and resurrection, Isaiah says, many will be made righteous. You are a child of Abraham. You are a child of promise, which we've been talking about in Galatians. You see, ultimate victory would not come by the blood of animals. Nor would it come by us just getting it together. It would come by the perfect blood of our suffering servant, Jesus. You see, redemption would always come through the engaging and conquering of that which defeats us. Which is what? Death. It's undefeated. Except for Jesus. And through Jesus... Scripture says, oh, death, where's your sting? There's not. So 
so that we might see and be satisfied. You see, he will see and be satisfied. We are counted as righteous knowing that nothing ultimate is on the table. For even now, it says he is even now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. What that means is even in our brokenness and sin, every time we sin, nothing ultimate's on the table because Jesus is sitting there saying, Father, remember what I've done for them. I atone for them. That's what it means when Jesus is he's, he's praying for us, He's interceding for us, but part of that interceding is they are broken, they, they, still, they still falter, they still look to other things, but guess what? I have purchased them. I have redeemed them. And so we find hope in our engaging Redeemer. I hope today you find hope. We find hope in our engaging Redeemer who has called us again to engage the broken world around us and proclaim the redemption of who was, is, and is to come. You see, we have better news that the world needs to hear and they don't just need to hear it next Sunday. They need to hear it each and every day of our lives that we would be the image bearers we're called to be. That we would stop sitting back And saying, yep, let me just say, we would stop sitting back and saying, well, it's just the pastor's job. It's just my missional community leader's job. No, yes, but no. We are all called to engage the world around us and proclaim the redemption of Jesus. We have better news the world needs to hear. And so the question I have is, are we willing to stop looking to other things and behold the glory of Him who engages and redeems our brokenness? We are so distracted. So distracted. You know what distracts you? Get rid of it. I only say that because I'd have to do the same, right? May we be so enamored with a God who engages and redeems our brokenness. So nothing else matters. This is it. Let us stop looking to other things. Let us behold His glory. I'm going to have the worship team come up. And man, we, we're going to sing a, a song we sing a lot here called Man of Sorrows. It's, it's, it's what we just looked at in the Scriptures. But man, I want us to take some time to... I, I encourage you to take some time to allow... Man, the Spirit of God, which engages our hearts, right? And just, man, allow Him just to open up your heart and say, man, God, where, like, where am I looking elsewhere? Where am I uh, seeking other things? Where am I walking in unbelief? Where am I trying to be a self-sovereign and rule my own life? Maybe it's saying today, God, give me a passion and a burden to engage others.
And in doing this, we are going to share in communion. And in sharing in communion, what we're remembering is, man, the brutality of what happened to Jesus. That he would be broken, that he would suffer, that he would give his life. He would allow his blood to be spilled so that we might be sprinkled, right? The nations, we might know redemption. And may we celebrate an engaging, risen, and redeeming Savior. And may it transform our lives. Jesus, we thank you that you came And it was joy for you to receive our sorrows so that we might know joy, so that we might know you. Let us stop seeking and looking to smaller things. Let us quit with the blame shifting. Let us quit with the, the, uh, the, the me mentality and let us look to you. Man, let us submit under the fullness of your Lordship. Thank you that you are interceding for us. Thank you that you came and died, that you engaged our brokenness and that you have brought redemption. God, may that transform the way we live. Give us much grace. Empower our lives. Let us walk both humbly and boldly.